Hello and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. Oh, we've started already, have we? Okay. Yep. <laughs> I'm Nicholas Lorimer. I'm Gabriel Krauser. And we are here to reflect on the week on Friday. If you hear the sounds of a lightning bolt striking in the back. an almighty storm raging outside. It's just begun as of a few minutes ago. Thunder roaring through. Uh, that's where we are. The storm clouds have gathered and now they burst forth. Doesn't it, doesn't it make complete sense? Especially considering uh, that we're now, what, what was Tito talking about in our budget? 7% deficits. I remember when I first joined the Institute, um, Ian Crookshanks, our, our chief economist here, said, you know, the IMF will, won't really even look at you if you're above five and a half, six percent deficits. Yeah. So we're there. <laughs> yep. R.W. Johnson's the great sort of, he's been for years calling, he's like, South Africa will finally turn the corner when we call the IMF in because they will be able to make the kind of fiscal spending cuts that we need to the public wage bill and procurement and all that. And uh, unfortunately, that ship seems to have sailed. Mm, well, I mean, of course, he writes his, what, when did his big book, Where's Wall South Africa Survive, come out? Uh, 2016, 2017? Yeah, somewhere around there. And he predicted precisely the situation that's beginning to emerge now. So, yeah. And at the time, no one took him seriously except for us liberals. Yeah. So uh, once again, we get to smugly sit around and say, I told you so. Yeah. Uh, which is not a very good feeling because we also live here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a good, I feel like I've had a good week. Um, last couple of weeks were really difficult. This week on a personal yeah, level was quite easy. It's because you've been doing heroic, exciting, interesting, investigative things. Some investigative things and I got to make a very august speech on Wednesday at the Liberal Club. Which yes. Was a great honor. Which was excellent. Uh, the Liberal Club, the most secretive and esteemed club in Johannesburg, which we can say no more about. Yes, unfortunately. We'll leave it at that. Uh, but last night, uh, to treat myself, I went to the Johannesburg Philharmonic Orchestra in the Linda Auditorium at Witz. Brilliant. And they did uh, Bach's Triple Concerto, which when I was taught music theory, my, my teacher, former Bischoff, said this is just the most pure distillation of creative genius in the classical form that she's, you know, it's, 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 it's difficult. It's, uh, and it's very, it's very much like this. Uh, mm. uh, he sort of starts out with this motif that gets picked up by a kind of nasal husky cello that sounds like three hobbits. A nasal husky cello. Cello's just really good. Clearly, clearly this is what, what... When one goes to Princeton, one gets words. No, no. such as this. This is in high school. Husky <laughs> and you know, the kind of jazz singer who's got like a cigarette in her mouth, but at the same time, it's like almost Edith Piafi. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's very little that can compare to the aesthetic feel of jazz. Whether yeah. you like the music or not, it's aesthetic is quite something. But so I just want to say about the triple concerto, it's like it feels very, it starts out very much like with this romantic theme that sounds just like out of Lord of the Rings, three hobbits walking through the glens and looking at the daffodils and the butterflies landing on them and it's very gentle. And in the beginning, it's a bit senile almost because it's like someone starting a story saying, you know, and there we were, three hobbits walking down the hill and oh, well, hold on, I can't remember, there was this other thing and uh, wasn't there a dragon? No, 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 let's start again. <laughs> there were three of us walking down the hill and the violin answers, yes, there were three of us walking down the hill. And the piano comes and answers, definitely three of us walking down the hill and it was very pretty and it gets madder and madder and eventually the sort of full-throated, 
schizophrenia that was so prevalent in Germany at the time. Uh, you see, while you after the invasion of Napoleon, he'd been Beethoven's sort of uh, uh, single opera. Finally, he gets the money to do it, and uh, just in time for the Napoleon to invade uh, Vienna, and he's going insane. He's also going deaf. His Nephew's about to try and kill himself <laughs> that he's tried to adopt. It's all going wrong. See, and you hear it loud and clear, very loud, very clear. While you did this, I, um, I, I visited a family member in hospital and then I went home and played computer games until I went to sleep. So, you know, yeah. uh, we have many cultural inputs here. Yours is a little bit more uh, upper class than mine. Well, I don't know. It's a fancy hospital. and uh, <laughs> yeah, no, The hospital was fancy. The video games were... Were, were, and not that you can have unfancy Nick, video games. you have two screens. Let's not, let's hey, not hey, try hey. and like work in class. I, I your... work hard for them screens, okay? I own them with a sweat of my brow. And I, I've just got to say, because it is important, and I'm sure Nick will be embarrassed for me to be saying this out loud, but he has got a new incentive structure in his salary where the more friends we uh, get in the yes. institute, the more he gets paid. And we've been getting new friends signing up at a rate never seen before. And as Woody Harrelson said in the movie Zombieland, business is good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here we are, two terrible opportunists profiteering from the gloom of South Africa by going to watch the opera and, and playing computer games um, while Rome burns. As, as, as the, uh, the animals always say in uh, the Flintstones, the sort of dinosaurs and stuff that are being used as lawnmowers or whatever they are. Yeah. It's a living. <laughs> so, so let's let's talk about the great, uh, magnificent things. Now that we managed to burn up five times of our precious yes, five minutes of our precious thing, uh, which is that you have this rather insane idea, or maybe not so insane idea. Yeah, that American presidential candidate South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg and DA leader John Steenhuizen. Yeah have a lot in common. Yeah, so I think that Steenhuizen is the Buttigieg of South Africa, or vice versa. Defend your statement, sir. Okay, so Pete Buttigieg is in many regards my favorite candidate for the presidential election of 2020. Um, he's a Rhodes Scholar. He's uh, a military veteran, served many duties in the Middle as East. He, as he described himself, a military Uber. He's, yeah, he, was, he, he drove guys around, uh, took some fire. What's really important about him is that his, his, his basic idea is that American politics has become toxic at the level of the esteem economy. The way that people talk to each other, the way that people identify with certain teams and disesteem people based on what team they're in. Uh, and the most obvious form of that is racism. Racism is just dissing yeah. someone based on the sort of color of their skin as if that's like a rugby jersey. Uh, but and, also uh, yeah. dissing someone because they're a Republican and just disqualifying our... them from possibly being a positive contributor to society or vice versa. This has become increasingly prevalent in American politics. Mm -hmm. It's not just, obviously a lot of it plays out in the media, in the professional and social media, but you can see it in polls done with ordinary Americans. How likely would you be to marry a Democrat I if think, you were I a think, Republican? Yeah, we, Those kinds of things have really they, gotten much usually, worse. It's usually referred to what, uh, the title tribalism or yeah. partisanship. Um, but I think we actually talked about this in, I think, our second ever episode of this show. We talked a little about the esteem economy and polarization. Yeah. And, kind of thing. And, and that was, of course, at the Liberal Club, what you gave your excellent speech about. We won't go into that too much, but what matters is that Buttigieg thinks that in order to clean up 
to clean up politics, as in the coordination of violence, taxing, policy, that kind of uh, nuts and bolts stuff, brass tax, uh, and to uh, keep boosting the economy, particularly in ways that uh, benefit uh, ordinary Americans, you need to clean up the esteem economy and stop dissing people based on the color of the shirt that they're wearing, if it's blue or red. And I think that that stood him in good stead. That's why he has managed to win as a Democrat in a largely Republican state of Idaho. Uh, where's he from again? Who? Uh, Bridget. What state is that? South Bend is in? Indiana. Indiana. Uh, it's generally purple leaning red. Well, South I would Bend, say it's red. Yeah, it's red. South Bend is maybe a little bit more purple because it's more urban. No, yeah, it is, it's a blue thing. It's a college town. So, I mean, I think, interestingly, how many votes do you think he got in his biggest ever election? Oh, God, it's like 20,000. 10,000. Okay. So, he hasn't done that well, but he's. I think he's got a nice message, which is let's treat each other respectfully and disagree on the, uh, you know, let's make arguments from facts rather than stigmatizing people based on their affiliations. Yeah. Um, he's, he, he was in many regards a favorite amongst uh, the left-wing American media. I'm talking about CNN, MSNBC. Well, not as much as Elizabeth Warren, but he probably apply, uh, he's appeals to a, a similar type of person often. Because he's, because, and, and, he, and his strongest appeal in terms of voters is sort of old, uh, old, college educated people yes. and I suppose it's worth noting that he's gay so he's got this uh, identitarian thing that sort of so, which, he, which helped him raise a lot of money when he launched his campaign to begin with he, he leant quite heavily on the sort of historic nature of his, of his candidacy yeah but I think he was generally compared to, compared to someone like Warren I think he's <laughs> well, tried harder to play down identity. Well, once he got into the race yeah Warren has gone down a lot of Things, but I think we've had an early episode where I complained about Warren. Yeah. So, so, so he has, so Buttigieg, so Buttigieg, I would say, got the most sympathetic coverage from CNN for a period. And I happen to know the guy at CNN who is in charge of sort of following the Buttigieg campaign trail. He's the an old reporter. Princeton buddy uh, and he's a good dude. And I really liked the attention they were giving to him and they kept talking about the Bernie surge, I mean the Buttigieg surge because he was sort of lost in the polls amongst the serious contenders but kept climbing, kept doubling things up and then won well, he's done, in delegate counts the New Hampshire, no, the, the uh, Iowa. Iowa primary. He's done. I and that made him look like a really serious contender and it looked like his star could keep rising. He's, but done, they, he's come second or third in every contest so far, I think. Yeah, or first. Or first. Um, and so he, he he's this sort of, very young dude, he'd be the youngest ever president who's come out of nowhere and basically he's done it because he's a really good debater, he's respectful, he's serious and he, yeah. and he's, I suppose, easy to look at. So what's his weakness? His weakness is that a lot of black voters do not like Pete Buttigieg compared to the other candidates. So I think the person with the most support last poll I saw, it's a little bit out of date now, but it was... I think Sanders and Biden were kind of at the top of black support in... And Biden's still more... I, I saw... Yeah, it was sort of 25 for Bernie Sanders and like 32 or something for Biden. Okay. I, I had it bigger. At the, South Car at the South Carolina debate, Gail, Oprah's best friend, was saying you to, to Biden that you used to completely dominate yeah. the African-American vote and now you're only 15 points ahead yeah. of, of uh, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Um, like that. Are you, are you going to keep sliding? So those guys are doing really well. 
Whereas footage is like around three, four percent black yeah, support. Really, really low. So this has posed a huge conundrum in terms of coverage. How do you cover that? Because if you poll at black Americans, one of the things you find is that more so than white Americans, I'm not sure if more so than uh, Latino Americans, but certainly more so than the average, there is a willingness to express homophobic uh, ideas or preferences amongst black Americans. And Pete Buttigieg being gay, that obviously makes him a less attractive candidate to some people. Another problem that he has is that he uh, fired the first black American uh, police commissioner of South Bend, the mayor now. that he's the and head I of. And I think the fire chief as well. And the fire chief. Yeah. And, the, and the police commissioner that he fired was literally illegally uh, taping conversations and phone calls being had by other people in the police force. And so it was just something that he had to do. And in a way, should be a plank on him to stand to say, look, we've, we've done a lot of good work in South Bend. We've got more black people in the police service. We've got uh, crime rates to come down. The town has generally speaking economically done okay under me. We've cleaned a lot of stuff up. And I haven't been some kind of white dude who's so desperate to impress black people that he thinks if I fire one black person, that's somehow an offense to all black people. In fact, I know that uh, if there's one black guy who's not doing his job, he should be fired because, uh, and, and, that other, and most black people will like that. He could have taken that line, instead he didn't. So I think part yeah, of his was, weakness you, is that I he's think been, you wrote an article or something about that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Is, that he, is that he's sort of trying to appeal to black voters as black voters, as this mm. sort of homogenous group. And that's not been a good way to undo the problem. But so here's the thing, in, in a lot of the coverage, you've had uh, New York Times, CNN, Slate, a lot of the sort of uh, left-wing pub, uh, print and television broadcasters struggling because they don't want to say, hey, here's a problem. A lot of black dudes are homophobic and they need to get over that because he's a really good candidate and also because being homophobic is a bad thing because they've got this sort of commitment to the thought that no black person can have a, a wrong idea or do a wrong deed unless you can somehow then blame it on some other white puppet master. So it's been difficult for them to complain about his lack of support, but it's also been impossible for them to not to complain about it because they're also wedded to the idea that for the Democrats to win, they need to hold on to uh, the vast supermajority of black voters yeah. and to energize them in order yeah. to defeat Trump on the basis that Trump is a racist. So what's the analogy to John Steenhuisen? The big question mark that everyone keeps putting behind his name is will black voters support John Steenhuisen? Yes. Uh, what's it? Uh, can the the DA win the an election with a white leader? Is the way it's usually put. Yeah. So if I mean we don't have open primaries, we don't have anything like it in South Africa. But in the kind of leadership battle it's, that's it's, going on yeah, in the it's DA, the subtext. It's not said out loud much, but it's kind of the subtext that some of his opponents, uh, you know, one is coloured and the other one is black, are kind of suggesting that well, be black people will never vote for a white yeah. leader. So. And so the analogy I'm trying to draw is I'm tr trying to say in the Democratic primaries, you've got all these candidates and you've got one guy who seems, maybe you can say to be the best or at least arguably the best candidate if you put all of this race stuff to one side. Uh, but because of the race stuff, uh, he gets hammered by a lot of lefties as not being a suitable candidate to take over the party. And the same thing seems to be going on in the DA, where you've got a few candidates running, and I haven't heard anyone make a serious argument that if you ignore race, John Steenhuisen isn't the best. 
Mm. It's only, well, once you build your build race back into your thinking about politics, then you've got to disqualify a white man. And so we need to find yep. someone else that you find someone, the backbone to opposition it, to see. Cyril Papaji said, uh, will the party have a Cyril philandering uh, uh, white man, old white man, or will it have a young progressive black woman? That was the way that the, the not so geniuses in the media fra- tried to frame the thing. Yeah. And so I think part of what's nice about this comparison is that it, it points to a fact that no one that I can find has yet had the courage to say which is that there are people, some of them are black, some of them are white, who won't vote for John Steenhuisen because he's white. Mm. And in a way, once you've identified that problem, isn't it just a little bit easier to say, okay, maybe it's better to do without their votes? Yeah. Why, you know, what party should be proud of taking racist votes? Yeah. Isn't the idea, I'm not saying you should actively try to chase people away. No, of course not. But, and you shouldn't insult people either. Yeah. And but, so you shouldn't insult people, but you should, I think it's a compelling case to say, look, if we're not going to get clearly everyone to vote yeah. for us, if we're not going to get, Ju- Julius Malema is not going to vote for John Steenhuisen. He's yeah. also not going to vote for anyone other than if Julius Malema. If the difference between you voting for a party and not is the race of a leader, yeah. then, and that party is claiming to be a non-racial liberal party, yeah. it probably shouldn't be trying to win your vote because yeah. you don't align with its values. Yeah, it should be trying to persuade you to change your values. Yes. It should be trying to induce you. It should be saying this our way is better and actually here's yeah. why. But it shouldn't it shouldn't be it coming shouldn't to be, that bargaining table yeah. and being like, okay, well the options are we stick to our values and lose your vote or we compromise our values yeah, and get be, your vote. It should be saying uh, we will build a, a set of values and a set of policies and an identity and they will come. Yeah. Not we will conform to whatever yeah, sort of. And so, so that's one thing that I think is helped by this example. And that certainly has been a line that's been taken by a lot of American left publications that are of a slightly higher caliber. I've seen some of that in the New Yorker. I've seen some of that in another thing that can't come to mind right now. But I like that. People saying, you know, Mayor Pete, it would be crazy for him to now suddenly pretend he's not gay or to pretend that uh, it's worth... Uh, compromising his gayness, like saying he's not going to get married or that he's thinking about conversion therapy or yeah, something like exactly. that to win over all of the black homophobes that won't vote for him. It's better for him to say, look, I'm a good family man. I've, I've got a husband. I want to make a family. I want to make America a good place to bring up families. And I think that there are more ways to do that than you might have appreciated initially. And however you look and however you, your sexual preferences work, I want you to vote for me because of these like really good principled reasons. Yeah. So I think that this, the same thing can be applied by John Steenhuisen. So that's where the similarities are important. But there's also a way that the differences are important. And well, the difference is that John Steenhuisen is much more popular to black South Africans than Pete <laughs> Buttigieg is to black Americans. Yes, it's true. Uh, and also, of course, their approach has been different. So Pete Buttigieg, the path he's actually taken is to sort of go to, you know, famous race hustlers and stuff, people yeah. like Al Sharpton. Yeah. Uh, and just sort of say mere culpa and bow and scrape and admit that is, or, 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 or agree with his opponent's critiques of him on race. Yeah. Um, and basically say, no, no, I promise I'll do what you say this time. 
Yeah. He came saying, basically, I am a racist. Yes. And it's terrible, but the difference between me and all the other white guys, at least I can admit it. I admit it more than they admit it. So yeah. vote for me. Vote for me. Yeah. So that's one way to go. It's totally not worked. And, so, and yeah, it hasn't worked at all. He hasn't moved an inch yeah. in, in, in the things. Whereas Joe Biden has said many a strange thing. I mean, he once described Barack Obama as, you know, here comes this black guy who's clean, speaks well, and wears a suit. You know, it's really not, not shall we say, sensitive language. Yeah. Um, what did he say? Poor kids are just as clever as uh, white kids. Yes. I mean, it's just such a telltale like. Yeah, so, he, and yet, black Americans by and large yeah. uh, trust him more yeah. because they kind of know him. They know sort of where he stands. They know that, you know, Joe was, he was freaking Obama's vice president. Yeah, he's a little How hokey. racist could he possibly yeah. be? Yeah. Um, so. And I th and that's an important thing, right? People distinguish that between real people. The media doesn't like to do it, but real people kind of are quite capable of distinguishing between things that give away some part of your thinking that's a little bit corrupt from your deeds and your sort of full-throated commitments. And that allows them, that allows people to see Joe Biden as a guy who maybe has some silly ideas, but is generally got his heart in the right place and also has his mind in the right place and really has, you know, for example, he, they try to pin him down on his uh, votes about busing at a time when America was trying to integrate black and white schools. And so they're trying to bl bless black kids from far away to white schools to sort of socially engineer a rainbow situation. And a lot of black parents were really not into that. And Joe Biden didn't vote for it. And uh, I mean, Kamala Harris also didn't vote for it and ha or had expressed some well, concerns about it. Child. Yeah, most of it exactly. <laughs> she was a child. But she'd expressed in her earlier career, like they pulled out yeah, some yeah. records of her saying. Oh, well, they asked her afterwards, would you support busing? And she said, no. Yeah. So, but she was going after <laughs> Joe Biden for not for supporting busing. So, at which point her career ended, by the way, and her entire campaign for president collapsed because they realized, everyone realized she was being an idiot. Yeah. So, so the point is that some things, also like stop and frisk with Mayor Bloomberg, like uh, this is something to go after him because Al Sharpton, a lot of black people said it was totally racist. And Bloomberg himself said it, it, it got to a bad place. And so they, they peeled back some of the stop and frisk. But as much as black people didn't like the thought of being pulled over by the cops while they're walking down the street they because they're black, yeah, they, they also did, didn't like was crime. They also didn't like being murdered and robbed. Yeah. Uh, and that was a problem in a lot of their communities, which is why I think Bloomberg, who's not a great politician, and I think if there's ever a politician who has bought their place, and I'm skeptical of the role of money being too powerful in yeah. politics, but if there was a politician who ever did buy their place, it was Bloomberg. Yeah, his purse is more charming than Yet. his raconteur. Yet he did still win, I think, a majority of minorities in New York. Yeah. And, uh, and, so, and, and so I think that speaks to the thought that, you know, black people, like white people well, and Asian people are smarter here's, here's a, here's than a novel they idea. are made out to be. Here's, here's a novel idea. Yeah. Maybe black people are not a monolithic group who all votes exactly the same way. There we go. <laughs> and, and, aren't, and aren't just clickbait fools like teenagers. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So again, there's this sort of similarity in how the media treats it, but there's this huge difference in terms of John Steenhuisen's appeal, I think, to a broad base of South Africans, being based on the fact that he has one of the firmest records of being opposed to Zuma in Parliament, he was never kind of caught offside. Also, or, that there's no—he's such a powerful speaker. If you haven't seen his Sona address, 
you should go check it out. It is, I think, the best speech that I've seen anyone make in the last year. And as for a sort of man of the people thing, I mean, he has famously been mocked for not having a university degree. Yeah, and he speaks Something like, that makes him like the majority of South Africans. So I think that he, I think that he to me, always sounds like a guy who'd be far more uh, comfortable hanging out with mechanics, yeah. talking shop, than he would hang, hanging out with me and talking about Beethoven and the JPO and the sort of niceties of George Bizet's Fourth Symphony. Yeah. Uh, or New Yorker cartoons, I, I, witticisms. I, I think, you know, I'm not exactly a man of the people myself, but I think I would also prefer the mechanics to <laughs> Come getting on. deep into the depths of Beethoven. <laughs> I'm not that bad. But, but yeah, no, Stian Hazen, he, 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 he doesn't fall for the trappings of jargon as a way to obfuscate Yeah, his speeches, issues. Yeah, the, the, that speech he gave recently was just lovely because it was so... It didn't have like a lot of pretentiousness yeah. in, this, in, this, in the way a lot of politicians do. Yeah, have. he's really down to earth. The DA's already had half a million black people vote for it. Mm. I think, think thinking that they're going to turn away is crazy. And I think many more will join uh, as the economy tips, continues to slip mm. and people see how terrible the ANC is. But there is a big warning. And this is sort of what prompted me to say I want to talk about this today, which is that Nicholas showed me something fantastic. Why don't you tell us about the 538 thing? Uh, well, I think uh, I can't remember everything that was said in it, but basically, so 538 is this polling uh, website run by a guy called Nate Silver. Which the is, god of polls. Which is generally considered to be a very good, uh, one of the best of all polling institutions in the United States. He is websites. the poll master. Yeah, he's the poll master. He was the New York Times and then left because they, they were, were too they were ideological. Silly, yes. yeah. um, but it looked at the effect of... Um, you know, kind of almost, I guess, groupthink on black voters. So the idea was that uh, when you actually ask black voters, what do you identify as moderate, conservative, or liberal in the United States? Um, more than half did not say liberal. It yeah. was like... Uh, it was a quarter conservative, yeah, it was about 38% moderate, and the rest were... Were liberal. So... Um, liberal, I, I, I don't liberal, like liberal. Yeah, not, Progressive. No, but that's, a, that, that's the term they in use. The in, term. in the American term. Yeah. In the study. Yeah. Um, but it's understood in the American term as in basically you're sort of left wing. Yeah. But when it actually comes to voting, sort of like 80, 90% um, of black voters vote for, for the Democrats and they tend to express in public uh, most black Americans' support for the Democratic Party. And so they set up this experiment. Yeah, where, so well, so the problem statement yeah. is there's a misalignment between values yeah, yeah, exactly. within this group How and can you, voting yeah, patterns. Why are you a conservative but you're voting for the quote-unquote liberal party? Yeah. Uh, so how did they try to work this out? Well, they set up this experiment where uh, it was back in 2012 when Mitt Romney and Barack Obama were kind of running against each other. Um, and the participants had three options – Donate $10 that they were given to Mitt Romney, donate $10 they were given to Barack Obama, or keep the $10 for themselves. And with that, the promise that for every dollar that you donate, uh, that'll be matched by the organization with a, another with an $10. $10. So it would end up being $100 to your candidate that you Yeah. Liked. And then they had three different rooms, um, one with no one watching, one where another person comes in pretending to be a participant who then loudly declares that they are voting for... Barack Obama or donating to Barack Obama but a white person Yeah. and in the third room a black person comes in and says I'm donating my $10 to Barack Obama Yeah. and they found that um, the black participants 
were far more likely to give money. I think it was twice, twice as, as likely to give the money to Barack Obama and his campaign if uh, the actor in the room was black. Yeah, who was also supposed to. Well, it is. It know. is like it is like the average was. Four dollars if there was no one else in the room going to Barack Obama. Six dollars if there's someone else in the room, but it's but no, that person is white. A white person. And eight dollars if there's someone else in the room and that person is black. Exactly. So that gives a very strong indication that people feel the social pressure not to be seen as a black person by other black people to be deferring or think, deflecting from support for the Democratic I think anyone, Party. And of course, we have this problem. It's not just an American one. Um, anyone who's ever kind of engaged in South Africa's racial politics sees this very acutely. Like when a black person disagrees with whatever the race nationalists think is the authentic black voice, Mm -hmm. whether that be the EFF, the ANC, or Al Sharpton, or Barack Obama, or whatever, uh, they're called a sellout. They're called basically a- a, Coconut. Coconut, a house- House N-word. That word's been, yeah. It's just awful. Um, And it's very effective. It's, I've I've seen- Uncle Tom. black opposition politicians kind of over time get mentally broken down by it because you're sort of, you're isolated from your own identity in a very poisonous way. So, and then another, just another part of the study that they referred to was looking at the difference between people being interviewed about their voting preferences. If it's an in-person interview, whether you're being interviewed by a white person or a black person versus sort of an over the phone interview versus filling out an online survey. And again, they found these huge discrepancies. The closer you come to sort of black people being asked by black people who you're going to vote for, the higher the pressure goes up to conform to the Democratic Party line. So one of the reasons that study stands out to me is this uh, is The Economy of Esteem, which is a book yeah. written by Philip Pettit and Jeffrey Brennan. Philip Pettit is an... Uh, the, and which you I are the say, foremost... Uh, high priest of, I yes. would say, <laughs> in South Africa at least. Uh, yeah, well, I think it's a very serious thing and people should check it out. Um, but so Pettit's, a, I'd say, the leading political scientist at Princeton University and Brennan is an economist. And the uh, and their basic thought is that there are these three social desires, the desire for power, the desire for property, and the desire for prestige or the positive regards of others or esteem, whatever you want to call it. And that the first two have been well-studied in robust, rigorous, quantitative mathematical ways and that the third hasn't and it's about time that we get around to doing it. And they sort of address their book, I suppose, to skeptics who think, well, we know that people kind of like to be liked, but could you really study this in a serious way? Does it really make a difference? Uh, surely people only like to be liked insofar as it means that they're more likely to get money. I mean, a company cares about its brand value insofar as it affects the bottom line. Companies that aren't customer-facing but are company-to-company companies. In other words, if you're the guy who's making ball bearings and you're selling it to VW, you're unlikely ever to be running adverts or doing any kind of public relations Mm -hmm. campaigning. Uh, so surely that shows that p- we're only chasing likes insofar as, you know, companies are only chasing likes insofar as that they can make bucks out of likes. Do we really ever like likes without the bucks? And to answer that question provisionally, they point to a very compelling study that was done in New York City public bathrooms. How's it, Mayor Bloomberg? <laughs> Who I think helped clean them up a bit. Anyway, so they found, and it was a tricky study to do because it did involve secret, secret cameras, in, in a bathroom. In Some ethical problems here. But they made sure that they weren't pointing towards the urinals or whatever. Um, and here's what they found. Men were more than twice as likely 
after making a pee or a poo to wash their hands if there was someone else in the room. They didn't have to be seen by that person. That person could literally be in a stall just sort of seeing their feet go by. Uh, it's a stranger. There's no... The, women also, just by the way, so like the guys when there's no one watching, I think it was like 30% of dudes wash their hands. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but if there's someone else in the room, it's like 80% of dudes wash their hands. And I th- and I always so maybe the secret to to stopping coronavirus is just to have a store with some fake feet. Yes, and then everyone wash their hands because <laughs> they'll be super worried. Yes, and w- and the ladies, uh, I think without anyone watching, it was like forty seven percent of the ladies wash their hands. Cough cough. So better than the gents, <laughs> but not that much better. Yeah, not that much better. <laughs> but like if there's someone else in the room, like ninety five percent of the ladies are washing their hands. Very interesting. Not something that you might uh, guess. Okay, so so let's. So the thought is that all those people are being driven by esteem to behave in a different kind of way, and that yeah. that behavior pattern, if you reinforce it over and over again, that can make very concrete differences in terms of bucks and votes. So so do and do check out this five thirty eight thing. Five thirty eight dot com is the website. Um, I think it's called why why are so many black voters Democrats or something like that. Yeah, and consider the possibility that a similar thing is playing out in South Africa, but that we have a huge advantage over America in terms of breaking up this nasty pattern of kind of treating all black people as if they belong to one team and they all have yes. to think one way. And the advantages we have, firstly, is that John Steenhuisen is a far more compelling candidate than Pete Buttigieg is, primarily because the way that he's chasing votes is based on character and not on color. Yeah, and, and, secondarily, and secondarily, because he's a better speaker. Black people are a much larger percentage of the population. So exactly. So, so if you look at the bigger picture. Sort of cornered in the same way. Uh, as perhaps black Americans do. And people still paint black people in this country as all being cornered, but it's much easier to debunk that when you look at the president, when you look at the cabinet, when you look at parliament, you look at the police, the, the, police, the army. Uh, if you look at half of the dollar millionaires in this country, uh, it's just uh, much harder to get away with this perpetual sort of claim that because we're victims, we have to uh, all think together in one way. And thirdly, you've already got a long legacy of black people in South Africa competing in different political parties with one another, yeah, which you don't have in America. Yeah, in America, it, uh, the black electorate has usually been either solidified behind the Republicans or the Democrats. The yeah, last Since time Lincoln. there was a very brief amount of time when they were split between about sort of 1936 and 1950. I think Eisenhower was the last American Republican to win any significant percentage of the black vote. So, uh, and whereas yeah. in South Africa, you've had the ANC and the IFP duking it out. At times, Gacha Putsulezi was more popular than Nelson Mandela within living memory for a lot of people. And the PAC was more popular than the ANC at certain points. Yep, you had a Zapo in the actual democratic dispensation. You still had like more than a million votes going to the IFP for a while. You had COPE getting, uh, what was, was it? A, about a million votes. About a million votes for Terry Lakota. There's been major ideological clashes between both Mbeki and Malema, uh, Malema and Zuma. You know, just, it's just much harder to maintain the monolithic yeah. uh, m- uh, myth. We, ha- we have managed to do it in South Africa, largely because we've got quite a monolithic professional Obviously, media. Yeah, a lot of people working very hard to keep that myth alive. But, it's, but, but, but the, their ability to keep that myth alive is in many ways constrained. And I think that with a little push, (laughs) uh, yeah. And I think with a little push, 
you know, a big a big win for John Steenhuizen. I think that could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I do think, I just, you know, I think listeners should consider the possibility that if the DA under Steenhuizen were to do well in 2024, if they were to get uh, 25% of the national vote, meaning let's say 750,000 black voters, which would mean an additional 250,000, mm. which I mean, I don't think that is crazy at all. No. Now, in fact, that's possibly if they are actually doing better than they are now, that's not a low ball yeah. estimate. Yeah. Um, then, Assume, assuming the party doesn't completely collapse. In the yeah, yeah. Yes, which no, is also a possibility. No, this is a sunny side kind <laughs> yeah. of scenario in some regards. Uh, you know, it's assuming that the economy well, continues to do well. If the economy continues to do as badly as it's doing now, I'd be surprised if the DA doesn't get 30% in the next election. And with that kind of tip over, uh, I think that would set them up in 2029 to win an outright majority. Mm. Because the thing about the esteem distribution is that so is that it's a very tipping point. It's There are these stable dynamic equilibria that become very self-reinforcing. Until they don't. Until the tipping point is reached where there's more people... That when more people feel more ashamed of chasing black voters in terms of their color and not their character, when more people feel more ashamed of calling people house N-word when they don't think uh, in the ways that Julius Malema thinks, then they feel sort of emboldened in shaming others in just those ways. Then it goes quickly from having a situation where it's sort of cool to be Hitler to a situation where it's unthinkable yeah. To be Hitler, yeah, yeah. and uh, I, and and that's what that's what the good news looks like in South Africa, uh, a situation where our politics kind of breaks apart from from race based based yeah. management, and I and I I don't think John Steenhuizen is sort of uh, some angel, I, I, he's far from perfect, and I don't think that he's the only person who could do this, but he does. He's he's what he's the best place at the moment. At the moment, he's the best place, and I think uh, and I think seeing how well placed he is. Mm. The best way to see that is to compare him to Pete Buttigieg. Mm. Okay, so that's, so that's my, pretty good. Pretty good defense. That's my spiel. I want to warble on about my spiel claim. now. Go. So um, uh, war. Tell us about war. Yeah, war. War. What's it good for? Okay. Um, <laughs> so there is another little geopolitical conflict that's breaking out that no one has bothered to cover. Cover particularly in the Western media because you know CNN can't ding Trump for it. Or at least they'll probably figure out a way, but they haven't quite figured it out yet. They're still working on they're it. Working on it. The only guys to cover it have been RT. Yeah, because they're a involved player, <laughs> um, and Turkish state media has also covered it. So uh, you I don't get that on my DSTV package. Also, I don't have DSTV. But yeah, well, yeah, Turkey. Where not. are you watching uh, Turkish television? Um, <laughs> let's leave something a bit unsaid. Um, so the little bit of background to this is Syria has this nasty civil war. Now, the government of Syria, or the originally government of Syria, led by Bashar al-Assad, is pretty close to the Russians. So they're kind of a Russian ally, some say a Russian client state. Yeah, because uh, they're not really close to anyone else. Whereas the rebels, uh, who have mostly fought against his regime, they've looked, they've shopped around, they're a very diverse group of, of, of ideologies and people. Uh, they've shopped around for a patron, and right now they seem to mostly be backed by Turkey and Qatar. Yeah. So, and that's partly because the US is in there and pulled Yeah, the out. US was kind of involved. Once they beat ISIS. And sort of dropped them and then in favor of the Kurds, and the Kurds are doing their own thing, who are kind of separate from these rebels. Yeah. Anyway, that's kind of the background to this. And as the Americans were sort of pulling back a bit and not really sure what they were doing in Syria, 
uh, the Turks and the Russians kind of came to a sort of gentleman's agreement between dictators, between Erdogan and, uh, and, and Putin. They sort of agreed, well, we'll kind of split Syria. And that was working for a while until relatively recently uh, the Syrian army with the assistance of the Russian Air Force broke through the rebel lines in northern Syria after there had been pretty much a stalemate for the past, I think it was more than a year. And that sends them to their border with Turkey is on the north. Yeah, so Turkey is, a, is right there and it has been very directly supporting those rebels. And now with the what looks like increasingly the military collapse of those rebel groups, uh, the Turks immediately injected thousands of troops into Syria, uh, which is basically an invasion. And now um, Syrian troops and their Russian allies appear to have shelled the Turks several times and killed some Turkish soldiers in fighting. So in other words, Russian allies and, uh, and soldiers are fighting Turkish allies and soldiers as we speak. Now, these are two very powerful nations uh, on each, right on each other's borders. Do the Turks have the bomb? The Turks do not have the bomb. Um, so they are, not, they are definitely the weaker power. But <clears throat> awkwardly, they are still a member of NATO, despite the fact that they've drifted away from NATO in many respects. So recently. technically, if you attack a NATO ally, yes. then you, all of NATO has to rally behind you. So and Russia attacking... In fact, uh, Turkey has invoked, I think it's Article 4 of NATO, which is not the big one. Article 5 is the big one. Yeah. Article 5 is where if you get attacked, every single member of the alliance is supposed to come to your aid and, and defend you. Yeah, post-haste. Which would be a world war. That would be you know, Russia and the whole of NATO going to war with each other. So that's, that hasn't been invoked, but I think Article 4 is NATO is supposed to support you if your independence is kind of threatened. So it's not like as big a deal, but it's, it's, it's kind of... Uh, so currently NATO is reviewing as to what extent Turkey is deserving of help, and this may make the alliance reach a bit of a crisis point because uh, if NATO says actually Turkey has done this to themselves and they're the aggressors then the Turks might even leave NATO. But that's specula wild speculation for another time. So what's my point here? Uh, firstly, um, because I, it's lazy and uh, it's a point I love to make, the media is rubbish for not covering this better because it is a potentially brewing conflict between two major military powers in the Middle East. It's so good the way you're so lazy but so good. Yes. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like it's so true, dude. It's crazy that there's a there's an not even a proxy war. There's an effective military exchange yeah, of they death. Just, they haven't declared war at the on hands each other, of but their two soldiers major, are shooting each other. Yeah, um, so that's and everyone's like, there's no there there. Yeah, I mean, effectively. It, now to be fair, it has been covered. It's just always at the bottom of the page. One of those stories that's like sort of three lines long. It's the same kind of coverage that gets given to, you know, a Sierra Leonean rebel group blowing up a bus somewhere. Yeah. Like the media doesn't really care; they're just sort of filling space with the story. Yeah, um, and also uh, this 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 conflict has not is not just in Syria; uh, it's also happening in Libya, where the two sides one side is backed by Russia, one side is backed by Turkey, and the Turks also militarily intervened there. So Turkey's invaded two countries in support of its allies in the past six months. Yeah. And if you're in Lebanon, you're super worried. Yeah, exactly. So, by like, the way, because they've been threatening to invade Lebanon. So, you know, this is this is this is firstly crazy that no one's really particularly covering this at all. Yeah. But also, yeah, I think it exposes something about how the West really does think that it's its uh, that it is the center of the world. Now, in a lot of ways, uh, America 
and the West more broadly as it's, as it's defined. Um, I mean, obviously it's very important, right? It's where most of the world's wealth still lies. It's where all of the most powerful economies apart from sort of China and India are. Uh, it's, got, it's got the tanks, it's Japan. got the money, Japan. Well, the cha- Japan is, of course, amusingly usually referred to as part of the West as well. Yeah. Um, it's where a lot of the power is. And yet it's not the whole world. Yeah. Countries like Russia don't just craft their entire foreign policy in relation to the United States. Yeah. Same with Turkey, same with Iran, same with Syria. Um, these things take a life on their own, and especially when the Americans are not involved, we see that these sort of regional power blocks fight with each other. It's kind of a snapshot of the world if the Americans did not exist or decided to suddenly yeah. go home. Yeah, I think what you're speaking to is what Rian Milan, uh, a great South African writer, refers to as the Copernican Revolution of Whiteness. And that is, you know, basically before Copernicus, people thought that everything revolved around the earth. Yes. And then they were like, oh, no. No, everything goes around the sun. The earth is, and neither the sun nor the earth are the center of the universe. Yes. Every century we discovered that actually uh, we were revolving around something bigger. (laughs) And so I think like a lot of, uh, there, there, there is a slow over the centuries process of like people thinking that whites are at the center of everything. Uh, and then coming to think that, no, the West kind of comes to stand in for whites yeah. and everything, the sun, re- re- the sun revolves around Washington. Yes. Uh, and if you can't connect the story somehow to what Washington's yeah. impact or influence and is, also, then it's not a story. No, in fact, Washington is not the center of the universe. London's not the center of the universe. Uh, and neither is Hollywood. I think also what's going on here is there's, especially in, this is particularly an American problem, the inability to think seriously about foreign policy. Foreign policy is very complicated and very important because it affects basically the global order that underpins global trade and, you know, how likely there is to be like a war or something. And domestic peace. And domestic peace, of course. Um, But the Americans have completely neglected, because they're so used to being the hegemon over the last two decades Mm. or more, they're so used to, to, to being in command that they, they've decided that, that if they can't score some sort of domestic political victory out of a foreign encounter, so the quintessential examples are like, you know, uh, Bill Clinton deciding to intervene in Yugoslavia to take yeah. news media away from his scandals at the time. Yes. Which is not proven, but very likely. <laughs> yes. Um, I think there's some focus grouping. Then we can just kind of ignore the rest of the world. And also, yeah. if if there's a coup in a country, it's either backed by America or America's enemies. Yes. It's either a CIA coup or, or it's a KGB a, coup or something. Yes. Yeah. Which is of course rubbish because these countries have internal dynamics that go on on their own and you know, usually by the time foreign intelligence agencies are involved, it's quite late in the day. It doesn't mean that they're not important players. Yeah. But it's not like they just conjure a coup out of nothing. They just yeah. go uh you five generals are going to take over the government because we say so. Um, as, yeah. much as, as much as Bernie Sanders would like everyone to think. Okay, that. but so let's not fall into the same trap by just obsessing about America. So what's going on from Russia's point of view? Well, I, as I, okay. They have, this, they have this regional conflict. They want to be a bigger player in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, and, and they, they, want, to, they've and they been want to protect wanting their this. allies. Yeah. Basically, since after they managed to put down the Chechen revolution, they seem to adopt the policy that, I mean, Russia in the 90s, its GDP halves, two-thirds of its wealth uh, flies to Switzerland or elsewhere. And its military prestige is damaged very heavily. But then it emerges under Putin as a more stable 
country. It starts rebuilding its wealth, huge GDP growth, uh, military reaffirmament. And it starts to see that it's got a lot of sort of minorities. One of the, I, I once found like the highest migration corridor by some measurements, and these numbers are all like sort of depends on how you count things, but is sort of between uh, the steppes and Southern Asia and Moscow. Uh, and so they, they see the Middle East as being very directly, peace in the Middle East as being very directly connected to their own prosperity and not just peace, peace on their own terms. And so they start developing well, also an interventionist the, military also, East, uh, Middle East policy. Also markets for their weapons, right? So exactly. uh, Syria and Iran are both... Uh, buyers of, of Russian tech. And the big introduction basically comes at the hands of George Bush in 2001. I think the first person that he calls ends up being Vladimir Putin mm. after 9-11, the first, person, the first foreign leader. And Putin, Putin and Bush become, you know, as much as you see uh, Bush and Tony Blair walking down the runways uh, a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah, there's a little, there's, there's a short bromance between... Uh, Putin and, and, and Bush. Bush. And that gives Russia the sense of prestige that it had long been yearning for. And Putin is the only world leader at the time then who's still around today. And he's continued to sort of use the Middle East as a place to boost Russian prestige and uh, commercial interests. And the Russians have, have been playing this game where they've tried to boost their prestige while spending very little. So they do their fighting by getting uh, Kremlin-aligned security companies, which are basically mercenaries, to do the fighting so that if there's uh, conflict there, Russia doesn't get pulled into a full-scale war. Yeah, uh, and also by using relatively small number of Russian aircraft. Yeah, uh, there's really not that many of them actually in Syria, and yet they're you know kind of decisive because it's they're more technologically advanced than anything else there. Yeah, and they've had good tech. They've had really good tech. From so Soviet what's going on with Turkey? Well, Turkey is well, uh, and so I just want to say yeah. one last thing about the Russian strategy, and it very much comes out of Henry Kissinger's playbook which is that if we can be the guys who are seen to broker deals, then we'll look very important. we become the de facto kind of power brokers. So they, so they tried to do this in both Syria and Libya. Yeah, and they, and they have had some successes. They, you know, it's like, uh, it's not often that you sort of see the mullahs of Iran and guys from the Knesset and uh, the Israeli prime minister sort of showing up in the same venue mm. in the same week. And uh, in fact, that hasn't happened at all since the end of the Cold War, excepting in Russia. And so, you know, so they've managed to get uh, Israel and Middle Eastern forces to come together. They haven't really cracked good deals, but they've, yeah. but they've so created they, that image yeah. of being the kind of broker that everyone has some good faith in, they, where, where while America was drawing red lines under Obama that it wasn't enforcing, and how did that happen? That was a huge coup because Putin ended up cracking a deal with Assad where he said, well, you know, you'll give up your chemical weapons, we'll make sure that it gets inspected, even return, if it doesn't basically. really. I, I expect that the in return, America doesn't have to go to war at a time when Obama doesn't really want to enforce his own red line because he feels America's really war-weary and he's been such a yeah. peacenik. So, so uh, you know, that's that's one thing they've done. and they're, But unfortunately for them, their deals have pretty much collapsed in both Syria and Libya, where, yeah. they, where they've tried to get them together. Um, what is Turkey doing? Well, Turkey is, I think in a lot of ways, uh, so Turkey has two phases to its history. It's got its post-Ataturk kind of military, militarist, military junta control type of thing, where the army didn't always run the show, but it was a very influential force in the politics. Yeah, it's quite secular, and the new god, in a and way, we, is yeah. the gun. And sort of exactly. bar down before power. Uh, and whenever, you know, the government was getting a little bit anti-Western or sort of falling into the Islamist block, the army would overthrow it. Yeah. Now that's changed with Erdogan. Erdogan is 
much more an Islamist in the sense that he believes that political and religious are much more tightly bound together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he often seems to see himself as far more the leader. He wants to, I think, take the leadership of the Sunni world from the other contenders for it, which are the Saudis. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, he also wants to reestablish Turkish control over much of the Middle East, which is a very strong historical thing, right, from the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, He's kind of a neo-Ottoman Empire type of guy in his in his way he looks at the And then thirdly, prudentially, I think he's got a very good reason to try and enforce a peace in Syria. Which is that it's right on his border. It's right on his border. A massive refugee crisis. Yeah. How many, uh, I mean, how many refugees does Turkey have? Like much more than Europe, hundreds right? Hundreds of thousands. And in fact, one of the things that Turks have been doing is they've been threatening Europe to say, if you don't give us what we want... We're going to we're going to keep our borders open so that we become a conduit yes. for immigrants. We're going to stop immigrants. Uh, we're going to allow immigrants to pass through Turkey to go to Europe. Yeah, and flood you with a million billion people. Something which they've now said that they are no longer going to stop immigrants crossing into Europe. Uh, so they seem to have activated that threat, but we'll see if they go through on it. So they they have this 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 both these expansionist aims and these protective aims, right? They want to yeah. defend their borders. They have a problem with Kurdish nationalism in the east of the country, which uh, might give birth to a secessionist movement if you allow it to keep going and in yeah. so much some, they, something been, like the Catalonian. Fighting, yeah, they've been fighting effectively a kind of low level guerrilla war in eastern Turkey for decades, uh, and of course they've got this problem of this massive war right on their southern border with refugees and all that kind of thing. And so I think what's important about the gentleman's agreement between Turkey and Russia is that they thought, I think that, I think there's reason to believe that they both believed it could work because their interests were aligned in kind of putting down the worst Islamic uh, states guys yeah. and at being able Although to sort... that being said, both Turkey and Russia have been... In their propaganda, they've been very anti the Islamic State, but in practice, the Turks, for example, kept their border open with the Islamic State, the entirety of its existence. Yeah, but they didn't want it to win. They just didn't want it to lose as badly as they wanted. Other well, the guys Russians to win. definitely didn't want it to win, although Turkey is a little bit more complicated because I think Turkey sees them more as a tool to be co opted than an enemy to be destroyed. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, the Turks have a much more complicated relationship with those radicals. Okay, so but do, you, do you think that the peace could never have lasted, the, the deal that they brokered? I think that the problem was that Bashar al-Assad was never going to accept a divided Syria. Yeah. And so the Russians have this problem that their ally was never going to accept the deal that they had sort of agreed on their behalf. Um, because why would Assad accept half of his country the northern half of his country being occupied by the Turks. Well, here's why. Because if he doesn't accept it, which he hasn't, he puts his own future at existential risk. I I think the chances of him being uh, violently deposed, well, being it, killed, are higher now than they've been since the beginning of ISIS. It does look like, though, that he seems to have gambled on, I want it all. Um, yeah, and, and he won half, and he sh- and I think the prudent thing for him to do would have been to be like, I'm very lucky. I was an autocrat, a dictator. I might have easily been overthrown, but the rebel force that ended up doing the best was ISIS, and the world agreed this is a terrible yeah. thing. So by comparison, I seemed not so bad, and I managed to get away with that. He, but now that ISIS is gone, I need to accept that I don't win everything. If he'd done that, I think there would have been peace, but instead he tried to go for yeah. everything, and I think that he – I don't – I. I'd be maybe not surprised, but I think there's at least like a 50-50 that he's not going to make it through the next three years. Well, he's got another ally, of course, beyond Russia, which is Iran. 
So Iran has a lot of problems at the moment, so it's not as strong as an ally as Russia is. Yeah. But it did largely save him with Shiite militias from uh, overthrowing in the early years of the revolt. So in that sense, he's got a little bit more room to play with because he can go for both. He can, he can get help from the Russians and from the Iranians because he serves both their interests. But at some point, my suspicion is that Putin is going to get fed up with that guy. Possibly. And, the minute, and I don't think that he can survive a minute Without Putin's backing. But if you go on... Especially if Erdogan... I mean, if Putin was to pull out, just imagine this. If Putin pulls out, says, you know, we've tried to prop these guys up. We've tried to help them put the rebels down. They're being invaded by Turkey. And the win that Russia gets out of this is that it says, uh, we don't want to push the world into war. Mm-hmm. They wait for... Tur- if they can... I think Russia's game... I think that Russia can win the most like this. It keeps Turkey fighting against Russian troops for long enough that the NATO question has to be resolved. Turkey gets excommunicated either willingly or unwillingly from NATO. And suddenly it's a much diminished power. Suddenly it's a much diminished power. Then I think Russia's happy, once Turkey gets taken out of NATO, if that happens, it'll be willing to go balls to the wall, pardon my expression, yeah. in going after Erdogan because it's going to be uh, going after Assad because it'll be sort it, of it'll sunk need costs. To, yeah. Somehow it needs to justify prestige-wise its own decision to, to do this. I think Russia can then step back, let them fall into their own trap, take out Assad. We, I'm, ugh, yeah, take out Bashar al-Assad, which is something that I don't think Russians would mind too much anyway. I think that they've seen that he's a bit of a well, useless, look, he's what, broken his word. And then Turkey... Then Russia solved its biggest problem, which is the fact that it hates the Turkeys in NATO. Uh, it sets up the potential for the Ukrainians and other sort of West uh, countries that are on Russia's eastern border, sorry, western, western border, border. To, to, to feel more antagonistic towards NATO, to feel more antagonistic to the EU. That's what it really wants. And it gets the potential to come in a second time and make peace in uh, ah, but I think you're the forget, Middle East you're to, forgetting to one thing, benefit. which is their reputation as a good ally. So one of the main things that um, the sort of non-American world powers have said to their allies is, we may not be as strong as the Americans, but we will never but we're much more loyal. abandon you. Right, uh, but, so, but I think that... Something which helped the Iranians a lot. Yes, but I, and I agree. And this is, I, I, I think it's one, one of the wonderful things about you is that despite the fact that you've never been to Russia, you appreciate that this is something that they have over the Americans. Yes. But they don't have to compromise that line of loyalty because Assad seems to have been the one who broke... The deal. Well, that's difficult to tell. I mean, it's part of... So, it, officially, of course, Syrian troops that have done the attacks, but as to what degree that was signed off by Moscow, we may not know for a long time until uh, sort of it, it leaks to Western intelligence agencies. Yeah. And the, uh, and the Moscovites tend to be pretty good if they did if they did sort of surreptitiously approve it in the first place. Then, anyway, so this is just a scenario. I'm not saying that's how it could happen. There, there, there are many other scenarios, but I think it's important to bear in mind how Russia thinks it might get a win and it's a little bit it's like it really is a a, a classic so at least it's a classic tactic in, in Russian novels mm. is this sort of jujitsu move where you allow your enemy to stab you but it turns out that he's like stabbing a wall yes. and and in overextending himself he ends up making himself vulnerable so yeah, I think drawing uh, drawing see, Turkey in see the French and German invasions of Russia <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, <laughs> everyone who's invaded Russia has lost. Except for the Poles. 
And the Mongols. And the Mongols. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that uh, luring, luring Turkey in, anyway, it's just something to keep your mind out for. It might be that Turkey's being lured to, to, to go into Syria and out of NATO, and, and that would make the Russians happier than anything you can name in the Middle East from the borders of Pakistan to, to the edge of And Libya. maybe they'll finally be able to accomplish that goal that Russia's been trying for for however many decades uh, to get control of the, the, the Dardanelles um, and basically uh, bully Turkey into not being an enemy. Because, I mean, Russia and Turkey have been at each other's throats for like more than 200 years. I would say 300, uh, yeah. yeah. By three, Catherine the Great. Okay, never mind. I can't do this calculation in my head. But yeah, I mean, that would be, that would be the cream on top of the pie, right? Is that Turkey in the next five years aggressively pushes itself out of NATO by accident, mm. uh, finds itself with no backing. And then once it's a little bit out there, it realizes it's a bit alone in the cold and that uh, dancing with Russia to Moscow's tune is, or against Moscow's tune is really difficult. And that once it's out in the cold, it might do better joining in. And if it has to sacrifice part of the Dardanelles in order to make that happen, Mm. Oh, I mean, well, I can't see, I can't I mean, see we Erdogan are, ever. No, 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 not Erdogan. The Erdogan would have to be gone for that to happen. Yeah. Uh, um, so we are kind of running okay. out of time. We've hit an hour. I, We've I, spoken I, about two things. You want to teach I do want to say don't count out the Turks. They are quite a lot stronger than I think many people give them credit for. They have a very large army. It's big. How, how it's, big is it? I think it's in the sixth or seventh biggest in the world, actually. Um, and it is not quite comparable to the Russian one, but it's getting up there. I wouldn't entirely bet on the Russians in a direct confrontation between the two of them to necessarily straight up win. Yeah. Uh, the Turks are not, no pushovers. Um, but we are running out of time. So I think the, the takeaway from this is just it's something to keep an eye on. You know, if you go and look for information on it, you will actually find some stuff and it is worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, it's because, not information being pushed on you, gonna, but it's out there. Yeah, the media is not going to really do that for you until it, gets out of control. Yeah. Uh, so do keep an eye on it. And with that, I think we are done for today. That's it for today. I want to I finish on this note. Um, today it's the 28th of Feb. It's a leap year, yes. so there will be a 29th. And the 29th of February, on this magical day, uh, submissions to Parliament. On the uh, expropriation change to the Constitution, yeah. Change to the, Constitution. the Amendment to the Bill of Rights. Uh, that's the final day for those submissions. If you haven't submitted, please visit the Daily Friend website. The, not the Daily Friend, the IRR's website. The IRR's website. Check, IRR. Out, check out the submission that we've been handing through. We've got tens and tens of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands of people who've signed up. Um, but we want to get to a million, hopefully. Uh, we don't yeah. know if we'll make it, but we're going to have a, at least a couple hundred thousand. We are, I think, the biggest collection of submissions in the country against yeah. us. We were last round as well. So, And if you... Uh, if you if you've submitted, get your friends and family to. Yeah, it really it, it's it's not a it's such a small expenditure of time. It's really not your time that we're asking for. It's a bit of spirit, and that is a hard thing to ask for. Mm. And I think that we try to keep things light here, and um, and we try to be informative, and we try to be giving rather than taking. But but they but are taking I, away our rights. Yeah, if I can <laughs> if I can beg for a piece of your spirit, it, the, this would be the issue that it's on. Yeah, the Bill of Rights is what it, it is the it is the cornerstone of this country. It, it's the beating heart of this country, and our artery. If there's know, one thing like, that matters, it's this. Yeah, it's really. And you can do something about it. You can just add one little signature and that might not sound like a lot, but 
it it's uh, I think it it means a hell of a lot to us, and we intend in every way that we can to keep making it mean a lot to those who are trying to drag a steak knife across the Bill of Rights. Exactly. So uh, give it a thought. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And keep thinking.